Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 33. Matthew 5, 33. We're going to read uh, from that passage in a couple of minutes, and I'd like you to be ready for it, if you would turn there. Uh, while you're turning to, I'll issue a, a special greeting to those who are watching by live stream. We're continuing to meet under these uh, pandemic uh, conditions, and uh, we're grateful for you joining us uh, via the power of the World Wide Web. So here we are together. Six weeks before I started my freshman year at college, I received in the mail the student handbook. And like you would expect a conservative Christian college 30 years ago, it was filled with rules. And I bet you could identify some of the rules too. No dancing, no drinking, no smoking, no movies. Uh, There was a dress code, there was curfew, uh, the standard rules. Uh, As an RA, when I returned my second year, I became an RA, and it was my responsibility to enforce some of those rules. And let me tell you about a particular problem that we had with the dress code that year for guys. Men, in order to go to class, had to have button-down collared shirts. No t-shirts, no sweatshirts, had to have a button-down collared shirt. The problem is the uh, dress code stipulations in the handbook did not tell you how you had to wear the collared button-down shirt. So there was a group of guys on campus who, following a fashion trend at the time, would wear to class corduroys, that was fine, a t-shirt, and then they would take a flannel shirt and wrap its arms around their waist and tie it. And if they were asked, yes, of course, I am wearing a button-down collared shirt. Some of you tried something like that before. I can see it in your eyes. You know what happened the next year when the student handbook was issued. It was a little longer. And it specified that men, in order to go to class, must wear collared button-down shirts that must wrap around the torso with your arms in the sleeves. And it specified the number of buttons that had to be buttoned on the collared shirt, button-down shirt. Uh, So there was the spirit of the dress code, and it had to uh, match the letter of the dress code. Now, I tell you that because I think it's a helpful illustration of how many of us respond to rules. Some of you strange creatures in the room love rules. You want to write rules. You want to make other people obey rules. You want to follow and enforce rules because rules bring order and happiness to your life. But the sane ones among us are bothered by rules. Actually, Even compliant people sometimes struggle with the rules. They bother you. They infringe on on your freedom. They make things harder for you to do. They keep you from doing the things that you want. Just think about how you respond to the speed limit signs that you see around. Most of us are under the impression that the police will leave you alone if you travel at least within 10 miles of the speed limit, and you take advantage of every single one of those 10 miles. Or school's coming, it's almost time for school, and on the first day of school, your teacher will go through all of the classroom rules. It's the worst if your mother's your teacher and she goes through the classroom rules. How enthusiastically will you respond to the classroom rules? We are rule-adverse people. That is, uh, we are not now wired to love or embrace rules 
especially because those rules, they're external rules that are imposed upon us, and they don't match with uh, a joy on the inside. No one reads a speed limit sign and says, yes, here is another opportunity for me to follow the direction of the wise officials who determined the safety of this road. And I, I can demonstrate my confidence in their wisdom by going no faster than 25 miles per hour. No one responds that way. Except here we pick up the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew and Jesus is laying down his commands. And his expectation for us as his people is that we would take them up with eagerness, that we would take them up with joy, that we would see them not just as a burden, but as light and life, that we would see them as this grand opportunity for us to express to him our love and our loyalty. And hmm, he wants this inside-out response that he is working in you Right now, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life so that the commands that you read in Scripture meet with joy that is in your heart. How much progress have you made in that? Well, it depends on the day sometimes, doesn't it? Now, uh, this again is the most uh, famous sermon in the Gospels, and Jesus is laying out here some basic principles for living under Jesus' uh, authority. And in this section that we're in, in chapter 5, Jesus is laying out, Jesus is laying out some, uh, he's uh, going through some of the commands in the law of Moses and laying out how they apply to his people. And that presents some puzzling, uh, at, there's some puzzles to this. This is a challenge to us to read this because he's speaking to a different sort of audience than we are. When we read the Gospels, we have to keep in mind that there are three audiences. There's Jesus' original audience that he's speaking to. Then there's Matthew's audience that uh, he wrote for. So Jesus is speaking to a different group than Matthew wrote the Gospel for. And then there's us, we who read these, these Gospels. What's the differences, or what are the similarities and the differences between these three audiences as you think about it? Can you describe them? Well, um, Jesus originally was speaking to a group of Jews in the land of Palestine. They were constituted by God's design as a nation. They were one ethnic group. And for them, the law of Moses was their national document. It was a combination of their Declaration of Independence, their Constitution. It was, it was their Constitution. It was their moral compass. It was their worship guide. It was, for them, this defining document of their identity as descendants of Abraham. Now, Matthew's original audience is not the same group of people. Matthew wrote his gospel to a multi-ethnic community that was not necessarily settled in Palestine, Jews and Gentiles in it. And crucially, he wrote to a group of people after the crucifixion and resurrection, that all-important pivot point in the history of the world. So we read these commands, and then there's us. Matthew's original audience would have been closer to understand the culture and the context of some of these commands than we are, but we share that post-resurrection church identity with Matthew's audience. 
This is a little bit tricky. Um, followers of Jesus have been uh, tracing out these differences in these audiences for uh, 2,000 years. We have a different relationship to the law than Jesus' original audience did. One of the ways you know that is because his audience still had to take lambs to worship. And we don't offer blood sacrifices when we worship. This is a blood-free, touch-free service. Right? So we have a different relationship to the law. Um, you know, so we, we think about these differences and try to puzzle our way through them. You know, have, have you ever heard the criticism? Somebody says to you, do you read the Bible? Yes. Do you believe the Bible? Yes. All of it? Yes. Do you follow the Bible? Yes. Well, do you eat shellfish? Because you know the Bible says you're not supposed to eat lobster and shrimp. Don't you know that? Don't you believe the Bible? I guess you're a hypocrite because you don't. That critic is someone who has not wrestled or recognized the pivot points that are in the Bible. We think about this. How does the New Testament, how do the New Testament authors apply the law of Moses? What principles are there? Because we read the Old Testament in a new covenant, Jesus-centered sort of way. We try to figure out, uh, we, we read it, we interpret it, we study it, but how do we apply it in a new covenant, Jesus-centered sort of way? It's not that hard to do in this section of Matthew because Jesus here is laying out some of the eternal moral truths that are rooted in God's character and applying them to his audience. And these moral truths, what's uh, unique about what Jesus is doing here is he's showing how these, these eternal moral truths embed themselves deeply in your heart. So he doesn't just talk about murder that you could do with your hands. He talks about hate that flourishes in your heart. He doesn't just talk about adultery and divorce, something you do with your body or something you do in law. He talks about lust. He's driving these things internally so that the external commands meet the internal gladness and we live different sort of lives. He's got three more commands that we're going to go through today, uh, and they can be summarized quite easily, these three commands. Keep your word, don't take revenge, and love your enemies. And all three of these are central to who God is. If you're a follower of Jesus, you take these things up. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life to bring about these three virtues because they're centered in God's character and who he is himself. I want to show that to you from the text. Let's walk through it, shall we? Command number one is keep your word, Matthew 5, 33. You can follow along your text or it's up on the screen too. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black or grow. <laughs> all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, you, you recognize the pattern, if you were here last week especially, the pattern that Jesus is going through. You have heard this is what is in the Old Testament or what's been taught by the Pharisees and religious leaders from the Old Testament. Jesus is going to clarify and correct here. You have heard then, but I say to you, here, here's what to do. And this passage is about oaths. 
Oath-making was an important part of the law of Moses. There are sections of the, the Hebrew scriptures where Moses describes making oaths and what oath-making is supposed to do and what it's like and how you're supposed to keep your oaths. We don't talk about oaths that much in our tradition, probably because of this passage where Jesus says, just don't do it. We should understand why. An oath in the Old Testament was a way to communicate to someone, I am giving you a promise, and I'm really serious about it. And here's how serious I am about it. I'm swearing. I'm taking it as an oath. And it was a way to solidify, solemnify your word, your promise. So in our culture, our politicians, they take oath an oath of office before they uh, begin their duties. And they swear, and often they swear at ending, so help me God. I'm going to become the president of the United States. I'm going to become a, a, a justice of the Supreme Court. I'm going to become the governor of Pennsylvania. And, and to do what God has told me to do, I need God's help, so help me God. Now the problem is, Moses had, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, written the law of Moses 1,500 years later. Over those 1,500 years, between Moses and Jesus, uh, the system of oath-making had developed so that the, the, the religious leaders and the uh, very faithful um, uh, uh, teachers had ways of making oaths that would not keep their promises, but would be ways of hiding dishonesty. So they'd have little verbal tricks. This oath is binding. This oath isn't binding. Uh, let, me sh let me give an example. Okay, so Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking again to the religious leaders, and look what he says to them. Woe to you, blind guides. You're in trouble if you have a blind guide. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. That's ridiculous. Or in Jesus' words, you blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. If you are using oaths to break your word, to hide your dishonesty, um, just stop. Just stop making oaths. Instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond that, you are trivializing God and trivializing the world he has made. Just keep your word. Now, I think about this. Think about this command from Jesus, and you, you wonder, do we have any ways in our culture of not keeping our promises, keeping our word? There's the second grade technique, right? You know the second grade technique for getting away with lying. Cross your fingers. If you cross your fingers and you speak, uh, you got to hide it, right, because you don't want people to know. Cross your fingers and you speak, then, then you can tell a lie and it's not really a lie. You're not really guilty for that. Okay, second graders, that doesn't work. It's not true. Well, um, if you're more sophisticated, maybe you talk about things like white lies. 
What's the difference between a white lie and a not white lie? Nothing. They're both lies. White lies, of course, we tell white lies to uh, uh, protect people, right? Everyone's trying to protect their feelings. You don't have to be cruel in order to be honest. Jesus is calling us to this, and, and he knows how hard this is going to be. Look, we already read from Psalm 15.4. John did a minute ago. Look what Psalm 15.4 says. Who can have fellowship with God? The person who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. There will be times that keeping your word will be painful. It will be costly. Words are cheap. Actions are very expensive sometimes. You will lose money in business deals. You may have relationships that are, uh, that you, you go into deep waters with these relationships because you are keeping your word. Anything beyond this, Jesus says, anything beyond yes or no, keeping your word, comes from the evil one. Why does he say that? Because he said later, the devil is a liar. He's the father of lies. He never tells the truth. But in this family, in this family where God is our father because he keeps his word, we keep our word too. So keep your word. Second command Jesus gives, don't take revenge. Don't take revenge. This is a little bit of a challenge, this passage. Let's read it. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The same formula, right? You've heard this, I say this, and then he gives four brief illustrations that we're going to walk through in just a minute. He starts with this eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth concept. In Latin, that's called the lex talionis, the law of the tooth. And it's in the Bible, and it's also uh, in other places uh, in the ancient world. And eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth was meant to minimize revenge and eliminate feuds. So think about this. You insult me, so what do I do? I hit you. I hit you, you're angry, so what do you do? You chop off my hand. You chopped off my hand, so what do I do? Chop off your head, which is hard with only one hand. But I chop off your head. I chop off your head, your brother comes and uh, kills me and my whole family. See how this builds, builds, but no, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's to minimize revenge and it's to move, this law moves justice from retaliation and revenge and, and uh, uh, impulsive anger. It, it's supposed to move it into the court system too. Because what happened was, um, very soon, eye for eye, tooth for tooth became, they, they didn't literally pull people's teeth out and literally pluck people's eyes out. They, they would make these monetary things. So uh, if your neighbor accidentally knocked your tooth out, not sure how, I suppose he could hit you and do it, but he knocks your tooth out. You go to the judges, uh, the elders of the city at the city gate, and you would say, he knocked out my tooth. And they would say, we believe that a tooth is worth three shekels. He owes you three shekels, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. 
So it become monetary, judicial. But by Jesus' day, what had happened is that the uh, leaders were teaching the people that they had to get recompense, and the recompense had to be done in interpersonal relationships. So if someone offends you some way, they insult you, or they say something that you don't like, uh, you can get, you can demand something from them. No eye for eye, tooth for tooth. No mercy, no forgiveness, no gentleness, no generosity of spirit. So Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. I tell you, do not resist an evil person. I bet you have questions about this passage, don't you? And how this works out. You have questions and objections to it. Um, Before we get to your questions and objections, I want you to feel the weight of this. Again, Jesus knows what he is about. Look what Peter said about the Lord Jesus, because Jesus is speaking these words in Matthew 5. He's going to live them out in just a few years on the cross. Look what Peter says. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sins, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. To this you were called. You who are a follower of Jesus, you have been called to not take revenge. You have been called to give up your rights. And it should not surprise you when you experience insults and and, uh, uh, threats and persecution. Jesus has already warned us about that. It should not surprise you that. Why? Because we live in a world that is in rebellion against God. Picture this. Imagine this. How can this be God's word is right and true. He's faithful in all he does. He loves righteousness and he loves justice and he made this world for us to live in and we human beings are living in rebellion against him. We don't want you. If you're a follower of Jesus, though, you have rebelled against the revolt. (laughs) You are swimming against the current of the world that is in rebellion against God. And it should not surprise you that there's resistance. It should not surprise you that there should be suffering in following Jesus. To this you were called. If you have turned and followed him, the Lord Jesus says to you, take up your cross and follow me. You have been called to this. Dave Harvey is a pastor in Florida, and he said, uh, a panel I listened to yesterday, Friday, he said, you can tell how deeply the good news about what Jesus has done for us, you can tell how deeply it's embedded in my heart by how I respond when I'm mistreated and betrayed. How deeply is the gospel embedded in your heart? You can tell by how you respond when you're mistreated and betrayed. I want you to feel the weight of this. Turn the other cheek. Hand over your coat. Go two miles. Give to the one who asks you. At this point in time, 
It's becoming increasingly true. It's led by our president. You don't turn the other cheek. You hit back as hard as you possibly can. And some of his most ardent followers love him for it. This is what he does, and this is what makes him great. It's not what makes him an apparent follower of the Lord Jesus. Don't resist an evil person. Now, you probably have questions about this. I have questions about this. Let's uh, think about some of the questions. Do not resist an evil person. Ever? Ever do not resist an evil person? Ever? Let's imagine you're walking to the grocery store. This has never happened to me. But you're walking to the grocery store and you see somebody getting beat up in the parking lot. Someone is obviously attacking a poorer, uh, a weaker person. Should you intervene? Well, Jesus says, don't resist an evil person. Hmm. Give to the one who asks you. I don't think you should give cash to beggars in downtown Lancaster. I think that's a bad idea. I, I think that a majority of them, not all of them, but a majority of them are looking for money for drugs. And I don't think you should bankrupt yourself to support somebody else's drug habit. St. Augustine says, we should notice in the passage that it says, give to whomever asks, not give whatever they ask for. And there's a difference. Hmm. What about self-defense? Is Jesus eliminating the possibility of self-defense here in this passage? Our Anabaptist brothers and sisters take this up very seriously as a call to pacifism. Is this a passage that demands pacifism? Leo Tolstoy read this passage, and he was the one who advocated the end of all police officers and all armies, because that's what armies and police officers do. They resist evil people. That's what they're designed to do. Do not resist an evil person. Well, this is not the only place in the Bible that the Bible uses the word resist. The Apostle Paul and Apostle Peter had a conversation one day. Peter was acting hypocritically. It was a threat to the church. And look what Peter, Paul says in Galatians 2 about what he did. When Cephas, Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed, resisted. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Hmm. Or think about Romans 13, 4. So in chapter Romans 12, right at the end of Romans 12, uh, Paul encourages and, and, uh, you to take up the same model that 1 Peter does. Uh, uh, don't, show, don't, ha don't take revenge and trust yourself to him who judges justly. Romans 13.4, look what Romans 13 says, though. For the one in authority, that is the state, the government, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, um, uh, the House of Representatives, the Senate, the Governor, the Lancaster County Commissioners, they're God's servant. They're supposed to be doing us good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are guard, God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoing, on the wrongdoer. Excuse me. God has put a sword in the hands of the government. What is the government supposed to do with that sword? Cut off the heads of the wrongdoers. Paul writes this, and within 10 years, he himself has his head cut off by the Roman government. This demands some hard thinking, this passage. How does Matthew 5.38 work into the rest of the Bible, and how do we think about it with the rest of the New Testament? 
here's a question you might have about this. Does Jesus want you to be weak? Is, does Jesus want his followers to be weak? Is that what he's saying here? Friedrich Nietzsche was a philosopher who hated Christianity and he hated this part of the New Testament because he thought that Jesus wants his followers to be weak. Hmm. Charles Spurgeon said, reading this passage, we are to be the anvil when bad men are the hammers. That's a pretty good image. We are to be the anvil when bad men are the hammers. Are we supposed to be the doormat too? Huh. Let's think about these illustrations here. These illustrations primarily have to do with interpersonal relationships. I know that because, think about this here, if someone uh, slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Slaps is a good translation. If you have a, 90% of people in the world are right-handed. And if you swing with your right hand at someone, uh, if someone swings their right hand at you, they're going to hit your left cheek. But if someone swings at you and hits your right cheek, they've done it like this, this sort of motion, this backhanded. Now, what's the difference between this and this? This one is an insult. This one is assault. This one is an insult. Uh, a very common uh, Jewish form of insult is to slap somebody the back of your hand. In fact, there's an Irish saying, too. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's an Irish. They say, the back of my hand to you. It's an insult. Don't insult back, Jesus says. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well, do what is necessary to make peace, even if it costs you something. Probably echoing, or Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 echoes this message here. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. The Persians did it first, and then the Romans. They had this rule that any Roman official could take any citizen at any point in time, and if the Roman official was carrying a heavy burden, they could make the citizen carry that burden for them one mile, or the rule was 1,000 steps. And you better believe they counted. Um, the Jews hated the Romans for this rule. And Jesus says, Go two miles. Uh, don't cling to your possessions like this. Give to the one who asks you. This is all the opposite of revenge. This is all the opposite of demanding your rights. Do what is necessary to make peace. Have within you the spirit of generosity, of kindness, of goodness. Frederick Bruner says that Jesus is advocating a third way here, a third way. When someone slaps you, you can slap them back. Don't do that. You can run away. That would end the conflict, I suppose. Two, that, that would end it. Or third, turn the other cheek. When someone comes and demands you go one mile, you can fight with them about it. <laughs> you can stomp your way through the mile, like your seven-year-old child does when you banish them to their room up the stairs, right? You can stomp your way through the thousand steps. Don't do that. You can go another mile, third way. The first mile is for the Roman, the second mile is for Jesus. Bear the cost of making peace. Give what is necessary to make peace. Now, by the way, some people have read this passage and have interpreted it as such, 
to, to communicate to people that if you are in an abusive home, Jesus calls you to stay there and to endure it. That that's what this passage means and that's what this passage demands of you. No, no, third way. You can hit back, you can silently endure, or you can leave and go get help for yourself and get help for the person who is abusing you. And that demands a tremendous amount of strength. This passage, this passage is not for weak people. Weak people don't have the self-control to turn the other cheek. Weak people don't have the love that is necessary to go the extra mile and bear the cost of peace. Weak people don't help those in need. They don't have the resources to do it. But Jesus calls us, his people, to do these very things. There was a film several years ago, uh, maybe a couple years ago, made about Jackie Robinson. Here's uh, Chadwick Boseman playing Jackie Robinson in this film. And he was helped. Uh, you know the story of Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was the first African-American player to play in Major League Baseball. And he was helped in this or recruited for this by a man by the name of Branch Rickey, who's being played here by uh, Harrison Ford. There's a conversation in the movie where uh, uh, Harrison Ford, Branch Rickey, is talking to Jackie Robinson about what it's going to cost for him to step onto the Major League Baseball field. Uh, his, the, the fans are not going to like it. The opposing team's not going to like it. Some of his own teammates are not going to like it. And, and Branch Rickey is talking to him about what he's going to have to do, how he's going to have to respond to everything that happens. And Jackie Robinson says, you want a player that doesn't have the guts to fight back. And Branch Rickey says, no, no, I want a player who has the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. If you follow a curse with a curse, they'll hear only yours. You follow a blow with a blow and they'll say you lost your temper, that you do not belong. Your enemy will be out in force and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. We win with running, fielding, and hitting. Only that. We win only if the world is convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great ball player. Like our Savior, you've got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? This is not for weak people. It's closely related, this command, not to take revenge, is closely related to the third command, love your enemies. Let's read it quickly here. Matthew 5, 43. Love your enemies. I'll show it to you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the Old Testament does not say anywhere, hate your enemies. This is one of the teachings that had, had attached itself to the commands. The Bible doesn't say hate your enemies anywhere. It's a deduction. Uh, if you're supposed to love your neighbor, then you're supposed to hate your enemy. That makes sense, right? And so there was, based on that, a lot of talk about defining your neighbor, identifying your neighbor. Jesus once told the story in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Who's my neighbor? Tell me who my neighbor is so I know who's not my neighbor so I know who to hate. Yes, give me the instructions. Verses 46 and 47, though, say it's easy to love people who are nice to you. It's not easy to love your neighbors. There is no miracle required to love nice people. Anybody, mobsters and murderers love nice people. But it is a miracle to love your enemies. And it's exactly what God does. He loves his enemies. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that better than anyone else. Because you used to be God's enemy, but by his grace, he has made you his child. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what you are now, God's enemy. You are unreconciled to God. You are in enmity, the scripture says, with God because of your sin. But God loves, God loves his enemies and sent his son to die on the cross for us in our place. He bore our sins on the tree, died and rose again. And everyone who turns to him and trusts in him and calls on him as savior will be forgiven. And God turns you from his enemy into his child. And in God's family, we love our enemies, even when it's sometimes a member of your family, a person in your church, your coworker, your cousin. We love our enemies in this family. There was a book several years ago that was written uh, called Welcoming Justice, and it was written by John Perkins and Charles Marsh. John Perkins is an African-American civil rights leader. Charles Marsh is a, a professor, a younger man. And uh, when Charles Marsh and John Perkins first met one another, Charles Marsh said to John Perkins, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, but my grandmother is a terrible racist. She's an ardent racist. She thinks Martin Luther King Jr. was a troublemaker, and she thinks that African Americans would be better under slavery than they are now. It's, it's terrible. I'm terrible embarrassed to tell you this. And John Perkins said, what does your grandmother grow in her garden? Strange question. Does she grow cucumbers, squash, mint, tomatoes? I have the sweetest tomatoes in my garden. You can pick them and eat them like apples. Uh, your grandmother likes tomato sandwiches, right? She must like tomato sandwiches. Uh, let me ask you another question. Does your grandmother grow blueberries? I love blueberries. And then as Marsh tells the story, he, uh, Perkins went on for about five minutes about all the ways he loves to eat blueberries. Blueberry pie, blueberry and ice cream, blueberry uh, fresh from the garden. I always keep blueberries in my, gar in my refrigerator. He said, when we get to the house, I'm going to give you a bag of blueberries, and I want you to take them to your grandmother, and I want you to tell her that they're a gift from me. We got to the house. Uh, Perkins gave him the blueberries, and Marsh said, he called those blueberries a gift that makes you a new kind of person. I haven't been quite the same since I accepted those blueberries. This is the way it is with us, we who are followers of the Lord Jesus. We have received eternal life in Jesus Christ, this great son, and it, it, God's great son, and it changes us. And Jesus sends us into the world to do the same thing. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we are grateful to you for this passage of Scripture where the Lord Jesus lays out these commands, we confess to you, we do not have the internal uh, 
naturally, we do not have the internal delight in these commands. In fact, they are distressing to us. And we confess to you, Father, that on the surface, they sound like commands to be weak. We confess to you, we don't have the strength in ourselves to obey them. Lord, we have not the strength to keep our word when it is costly. We have not the strength to love our enemies, to go two miles, to turn the other cheek. We don't have the self-control. We don't have the love. We would rather take revenge and we would rather fight back. So we come before you confessing to you our weakness Grateful to you for the Lord Jesus, whose strength is made perfect in weakness. Raise up in our congregation, we pray, within these walls and outside of our church, Father, a community of people who are marked by their love for one another and their willingness to lay down their rights for the sake of others and especially for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Lord, it's even in, in this room, we can think about people that we struggle with in this passage. We can think of coworkers, neighbors, classmates at school, people we do not want to love, do not want to show kindness to. Thank you for this high calling. You who are the great God of heaven, would you work in our minds and our hearts so that we can glorify you with the lives that you have given to us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.